0: Wow, episode 16 of the Attitude Makeover Show. I think the Attitude Makeover Show is hitting its teenage face. This week, we have a guest who is something of a specialist in the area of human's best friend. I have with me canine behaviour consultant and educator Sindur Pangar, whose journey into the canine world is nothing short of incredible. Sindur is a strong proponent of humans spending a great deal of time and energy in understanding dogs and doing our homework especially prior to adopting them. In doing so, she breaks many of the myths and assumptions that people make about dogs, cites some of the most significant challenges faced in our relationship with them and throws some light on some of the most remarkable traits of Indians treaties that most of us scarcely know of. Thrill elaborates on her experience of pursuing her passion through the canine world and gives us precious nuggets of advice on what to do and what not to expect when following one's passion in a very unconventional path like hers. I hope you like the show. Sindur, it's a lovely, uh, no, I'm going to start again, (laughs) (laughs) okay, I'm getting better at this,
1: I'm
0: with the wonderfully unique Sindur Pangal, she is an author, a canine behaviourist, entotherapist, no, myotherapist, canine myotherapist, a a, uh, TEDx speaker, a dancer, used to be used to be, and also a independent entolo- entomology... Ethology. Ma- I will never get this right. Will you edit this? No. This Shut people. up! <laughs> 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 this because there's so much new things I'm learning here. Yeah, re- Ethology. Ethology. Ethology researcher. And it's a pleasure to have Uh, have you you. here in my show. Welcome to the Attitude Makeover Show, Sindhu.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so excited (laughs) to be here and uh, uh, can't wait to have this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a lot of bloopers I've made
0: there because everything is completely new. I have known you as a product manager Mm -hmm. and you grew in that career path uh, from Yahoo to VP of product management. And then you change gears to really follow your passion. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about the journey you've gone through.
1: Okay. So I think I have to uh, offer my, uh, you know, uh, sort of respects to my first profession, which is I'm an engineer by profession, I by qualification. Uh, so that's where I started with Yahoo as an engineer. And... Um, you know, there's a joke that in Bangalore, if you toss a stone, you're gonna most likely hit an engineer, right? <laughs> so I just fall in that category. Um, I'm looking at one and another one. <laughs> see, I see, I made mean my point, right? <laughs> so um so I think and I think that's the cool thing about Bangalore is you see that a lot of people who are or were engineers, um, and uh, have gone into a lot of new things right. and it's an extraordinary place of privilege quite honestly to be able to say okay I started with this I had this education and I didn't throw it away necessarily yeah. because these are um, kind of things that you learn that stay Life with lessons, you right? yeah yeah But I think I got the opportunity to explore, look around, and I tried a lot of things. So like you mentioned, I tried a bit of classical dancing to see if that works. It was an old, old, old thing of mine, picked it up. Um, That uh, didn't, uh, while it was fun, I don't think that was the right path for me. And then um, while I was, I was a VP for a Silicon Valley-based startup. um, And while I was there, um, uh, I was also uh, nursing back to health my dog who had met with an accident. Uh, A car had run over her face and she had survived miraculously. But I think that was kind of very pivotal. So just nursing her back to emotional good health, Mm. Because vets will do the job of, you know, getting them back to physical good health, but nursing them back to emotional good health, I think uh, that led me in all kinds of directions. It led me to Norway. It led me to meet uh, my mentor, Turid. And uh, and I think somehow, uh, I don't know, universe conspired, I suppose. Uh, and i ended up uh, working with dogs and i think th- and i think this is where the engineering and all the all the past um, things matter right because then i started looking at it saying okay i don't just want to be working with dogs i also want to be researching them i have mm. a fantastic opportunity here with free ranging dogs and that's where the ethology researcher bit comes into play so having these uh, streeties uh, what we call free ranging dogs having access to that having um, a knowledge of numbers having uh, um, an appreciation for research I think all of that came together and so thus was born this career
0: I could I could see a semblance of sorts and I could relate with your journey a lot because having grown in a similar pattern and now I mean after years you've you're like a you know mentor of sorts for me (laughs) because you've led this journey you've lived this life and now you are who you are as a result of this journey that you've been through. And I'm just embarking on this journey. So I thought this conversation is going to be a lot more mentoring of sorts. (laughs) And also, I think as we get into canine behavior, there's a lot of parallel I'd love to draw with human behavior and canine behavior in our worlds and how they sort of interlock in a lot of ways. But I want to start off with, you always had dogs, but then this is not how you set out. And like you said, Norway happened and Tured happened. Tell me when you went there, like I've always had dogs, right? I've had like five dogs in my lifespan uh, and each one leaves an impression in your mind and you think you know them, but yet it's like a mystery on how yeah. beautiful uh, a creature they are. What are some myths and assumptions that were completely broken when you met Turid and went through that first behavioral um, training right
1: so I think um, it was just a way of life that kind of completely changed for me because when I went to meet Turid um, I just uh, at that time I was just a you know more or less an enthusiast right like I had read up articles about how to work with dogs and um, it sounded interesting to me But the primary reason I kind of went to meet her was not really because I wanted to follow this professionally. But, Mm. uh, you know, I I came upon the opportunity uh, to spend time with her, live with her in her house, in fact, which a lot of people don't get a chance to do. And here was this... Um, you know, lady with silver hair and two braids, living in the fjords of Norway, uh, being apparently being able to understand dogs. And it was like, you know, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, Mm -hmm. it was like Radagast, right? And I was like, I'm going to get to meet somebody who's like very fascinating. So I remember actually having this conversation with, you know, my late husband, Uttam, and telling him, you know, I don't know what's going to come of this, Mm -hmm. but... These kind of opportunities you just take, right? You don't know where this is going to go. So I went and I met her with no preconceived notion of what I'm going to be learning. Uh, maybe a little bit, I don't know. But I had been at that time kind of working with my dog and training her. And uh, uh, and then when I met Turid, I think what was earth-shattering for me was that she started questioning... Um, what do you say, my beliefs mm. and uh, my sense of entitlement and what I can expect from a dog. So, you know, uh, like we were discussing earlier, <clears throat> I think I made this mistake to a lot of us do having this kind of preconceived notion of what a dog is, what a dog should be, what is a well-trained dog, what is a good dog, what is a dog that represents um, a, a responsible you know pet parent or owner Uh, you know what kind of a mirror can she hold up to make me look good right so all of those things and I'm trying to fit her into these things and it's not really happening and then I met Turid and she fundamentally questioned how I had the right to have this image and why I was trying to fit I claim to love this dog to bits and then she pointed out that you don't seem to love her you seem to love the idea of her mm. you seem to love the idea of what she can become for you that I think was really the that's what hit me from there I mean there were a lot of other smaller things you know that uh, that one learns you know oh you think this is great for the dog you know don't use collars use harnesses and these are like smaller things but the idea of putting the dog at the center, the idea of recognizing them as sentient beings um, that have incredible personalities and being able to see that and appreciate it. And most of all, and this I think is a very important life lesson, let go of control. They're living yeah. beings. You can't control life. You can't control living beings. Let it go. Yeah. I think I, I could sort of relate to this. Like We normally, like,
0: I, I have Leah now, right? She's a year old. The first thing we start with is sit, stand, roll over, turn around right. and then Leia, come here and Leia has to walk in. And, and, and I think when I heard some of your conversations and your book especially, and I think for the audience, you have to read this book, Dog Knows, uh, because it really opens your mind on how they communicate yeah. and the world is very different. Um, there's a science to it. There's a wisdom to why they communicate the way they communicate. Yeah. So you're saying the whole fundamental thing that we start off with, like, you know, training our dogs on what behavior is, like how we train our kids as well, right? Like what good behavior is, the rules,
1: and this is the behavior. It's sort of like an expectation we set. Absolutely. And with dogs, I don't think we realize this, but it is that expectation, you know, pans across every aspect of their life, right? Mm. So, If you look at a typical home uh, and a typical dog that's subject to training, we're trying to get them to, we control every aspect of it. Where you sleep, how long you sleep, what you eat, where you eat, when you eat, when you go for a walk, where you pee, when you pee. I mean, who you're going to be friends with, who you're not going to be friends with. Everything, everything that matters to the dog is something we control. And as a living being, that means that they have no control over any aspect of their life. Mm. I mean, just think about that, right? If we didn't have control over certain aspects of our life, even a little bit, the fact that we're being asked to wear a mask and it's like driving some of us up the wall, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we know what it means to lose control. And we have seen this with wild animals, you know, They have control over their lives, but if we take them from there and put them in captivity, we can see that drop in welfare in these individuals. And we have seen this with um, even with people in hospice care. You know, people in uh, nursing homes where you know they are being taken care of by somebody else and they've lost control. So there are a lot of studies that show that this loss of control, you know, increases stress response in the body like crazy. But that's the sciency part of it. It just makes us uncomfortable. Mm. It becomes a life not worth living after a certain point, right? Uh, but we routinely subject this to our dogs without batting an eyelid. Yeah, we start with that. Yeah, right? like
0: the moment they walk in.
1: And- yeah, we start with that, and you know, every aspect of it. We we don't realize that there's not a single aspect of their life that matters to them that we actually give them a choice over or a say in. And um, you know, I must say, I'm just back from Kurg. Um, we were at this resort. And um, this, there were seven dogs on that resort. I love that picture, by the way, of how your little fellow went and made yeah. friends with the So others. that was a very interesting one because, so not fellow, feli, so. <laughs> <laughs> Chiru, girl. Uh, I, I, and you'll appreciate I this think... even more when I tell you the story. So seven dogs on the property, or eight dogs, I think. Okay, out of the eight, seven of them are happy to make friends with Chiru. And what does my Chiru do? Goes and argues with all of them or has, you know, bullies them or gives them a cold shoulder. One dog, Bhishma, he did not like her. Mm. That was the dog she wanted to impress. I have videos she's standing in front of this guy he's totally disinterested he's sitting and sunning himself and this girl is standing in front of him and dancing and dancing and dancing (laughs) one step forward one step back and I have this on video my friends and I are sitting there and watching saying what are you doing why this dog you know so many other dogs and this is the dog that you're picking and my students were there they brought their dog along, Javi. And we badly wanted Chiru and Javi to be friends. So that, you know, we get to hang out together, right? Mm. Our social needs. Mm. And so we want, this is a bit like arranged marriage, right? Like, we both want to <laughs> <have> an <laughs> analogy. <laughs> okay? Didn't happen. And I should not be surprised with her because it didn't work when my parents tried it on me either, right? So we are trying them to be friends and that didn't happen. She went and argued with that guy, scared him off and came away. And I was pretty upset that evening. And then I had to remind myself, Sindhur, this is you. This is you 20 years ago. So don't get upset. She doesn't want to be friends with him. So you find another way to socialize with those people. She wants to be friends with that bad boy. Yeah. You know, that Bhishma. And I remembered, oh my God, this is her pattern. I have videos going back to five, six years where resort after resort, farm stay after farm stay, she goes and picks the one dog who doesn't want to be friends with her. And that's the one that she's putting up a dance for. Mm. Now, that makes me realize how rich and complicated their social lives are. Yeah. We don't think about these things. Yeah. Why does she want to be friends with the dogs that don't want to be friends with her? What is her thing? I don't know. I can guess. I can speculate. I can be fascinated by it. But when I try to control it, I get to not see how interesting a dog's social life really is. It brings a interesting comparison,
0: right? My Leah. So my shadow was a very confident boy. Like... You could see where he walks, it's like, I'm coming, um, you know, watch out, sort of an attitude thing. He never got along with other dogs, never. <laughs> the only one he got along with was my neighbor's dog, where he used to take his bones and go share everything. Through a little fence nook, he would go and, you know, shove up uh, his food, and they used to make friends, and that guy was come used to come into our, uh, you know, garden, and they would run around, but never got along with the others. This one, on the other hand, is all, you know, all over. But what I see is there's a very unique way that they communicate. They There's no voice. I mean, they do bark differently for different things. But the body language is where you have to figure out a lot of things as pet owners. Mm-hmm. So as a pet owner, how can I undo some of these myths or assumptions I have and really make it a different you know, ethical relationship between my
1: pet and me. Absolutely. And I think this is a really good question. uh, And I love it when people are in this place, right? When they've arrived at this place where they say, okay, I want to take a step back. I want to uh, make this more of a... uh, i won't say equal relationship but at least you're trying to kind of get it there right yeah. it'll it's never going to be equal let's face it um and i think for any relationship for the nature of that relationship to improve from both sides the first thing is communication Hmm. so i think to anybody who asks me um you know how do i what is the first step i would say spend a little energy or time learning about dog body language Hmm. learning about how they communicate it's nuanced and it takes um it takes skill to be able to see because it's so quick it's a blink of an eye a lick of a lip a turn of a head and there's so much wealth of information there um so, of course, uh, you know, it's not meant to be a plug, but I do have a course on Udemy on this. It's a, it's a short two-hour course. We have a lot of videos that you can practice on. Uh, and for me, it has always been videos. Mm. Some people are better at observing dogs with the naked eye. and for But for me, I think, it, you know, videos and slow motion really helps a lot. Um, my teacher, Turid, has a fantastic book called On Talking Terms with Dogs. Mm. Um, so something, you know, something where you pick up and understand what are uh, what we call calming signals. That is what dogs use to communicate. And then observe. Uh, Turit has a famous line that she says, she's like, shut up and observe. Hmm. So I think uh, it's the equivalent of saying shut up and listen. Yeah. Right. So listen, listen to what they're saying. Uh, And then there are a few mental shifts to make which is to say okay I'm not going to it's not about trying to get them to be uh, fit into the image that we want to it is trying to appreciate what they are I'm going to take a step back like I told you in the case of Chiru and Javi what I want is for her to be friends with Javi but what I uh, need to be doing is taking a step back and asking what does she want uh, what you know what is her um, what is ideal for her and I don't necessarily know what is right for her what is ideal for her this is her social contact she's meeting it in a way that is supposed to work for her just the way you know what the kind of friends I need to have you can't have an opinion on that yeah, yeah. <clears throat> you may not like the people I choose to be friends with but you you know I'm going to be friends with who, who meets you my need currently yeah. right yeah. So understanding that, making that mental shift, I think it's it's a, it's a kind of a humility yeah. to be able to say, okay, you know, I recognize that you are um, giving back agency, mm. giving back choices. Uh, I think that's really where it starts. We
0: do that a little sort of
1: self-imposed
0: way with work. Like when we are in a work environment or when we are in a gathering of sorts, a social gathering of sorts, we observe yeah. we observe body language and we interpret and sort of internalize yeah. it in different ways and yet with dogs we sort of think we are much more superior and thereby yeah. here's my expectation yeah and you better abide by that yeah and so what you're saying is change that language change the expectation yeah and observe
1: yeah um. that and also I think with animals there is a challenge uh, in that we tend to kind of underestimate their cognitive abilities we tend to underestimate that they have opinions they have thoughts they have judgment they we do under, yes absolutely they do use good judgment and bad judgment I mean of course you see this with street dogs all the time they have excellent judgment lot of our pet dogs do not have great judgment because we've never put them in a position where they we allow them to exercise choice and you know get their brains to work we don't we don't uh, recognize that they have brains mm. we don't recognize they have thoughts we don't recognize they have cognition they're capable of incredible things and we don't recognize any of that um, and so when we don't recognize it, how are you going to nurture it how are you going to see the best of it if I'm going to only see Chiru having an argument with a few dogs and you know that's the only thing I'm able to, see. I'm going to say how do I train you to be there But when I take a step back and start looking at it, I can see that she can negotiate extremely difficult social situations if she wants to. Mm. And that's interesting that she only does it when she wants to. But I have to nurture that to be able to see that. And this is coming a little bit from, you know, back in the days of uh, the philosopher Rene Descartes, right? Um, So the Cartesian idea of animals is that uh, animals are like Automatals, like machines, mm. which means that they're going to have a deterministic output, okay. which is input in, input mm. out, like a machine. Mm. Two plus two is four. Mm. So, I remember watching a very interesting talk, I think, um, was it, I can't remember if it was Chomsky or Lado who was explaining this thing and explaining the difference. Um and he says, human beings, for example, I'm going to use exactly his example. It's a little jarring, but I think it makes the point quite well. He says, uh, you know, human beings, we are not automatons. We don't have deterministic output. We have choice and we have free will and we think, which means that we can un- guess to a, great prob- to a great probability what you're likely to do, but mm. we can never have 100% guarantee on what anticipate. you will do. Mm. Because you could... You know, have a curveball. And the example he gives us, he says, let's say somebody comes in here with a gun and says, I'm going to shoot you all if you don't say, Heil Hitler. Now, high probability that most of you will say that because there's a gun pointed at you. But there's also a little chance that somebody here is going to say, I won't. Mm. I won't do it. Go ahead. Take a shot. Right. And that that is where, you know, that's the free will of human beings. Now, mm, Um, the Cartesian view is that animals don't have that. They're more like machines. Two plus two will always be four. That's not the reality though, because at home I see this all the time. Exactly. So that's the thing, right? Uh, If you're coming from a place where you say they're like machines, then you're trying to program them. And that's where a lot of training comes from, which is to say, you know, we can program them into giving us the perfect output. And uh, interestingly, you know, subsequently much later, I mean, though his his own uh, kind of contemporaries did argue and say that wasn't the case we should uh, we shouldn't be looking at animals like that it's a very it's a very unhealthy way of looking at animals because during his own times and i think he himself was involved with this as well uh, they were performing surgeries on dogs without anesthesia without you know they were just live open and the screaming of the animal in pain they were putting it down too it's like a broken machine mm. you know mm. it's a malfunctioning machine it's there's no feelings mm. There's no thought. There are no emotions. This is like a machine. And it's like, I, you know, I don't have to give anesthesia to this box to open it and, you know, fix it. And you don't have to do it to animals. And that idea has become so pervasive, has stuck, though his own contemporaries actually uh, did uh, feel very strongly that that wasn't the case. It has stuck and it continues to stick. Because, and this is where it gets uncomfortable, it gives us the right to do a lot of things to animals if we tell ourselves that, hey... They don't have sentience, they don't have emotions, mm-hmm. they don't feel. Mm-hmm. And everything from breathing and how we look at everything, everything. right? Everything. everything. And what is interesting about it is that Cartesian idea actually then fed into uh, the works of Skinner and Watson. Skinner and Watson did a lot of work on behaviorism, which is, you know, trying to train. um, uh, They they did these experiments on dogs and rats, but of course they did it for human beings. And sadly, a lot of those ideas uh, did make it into human psychology. See, this is why I think we need to understand animals, because a lot of our understanding of human psychology... Comes from where? Experiments on animals. How do we then say that you know they are different, we are different when we are trying to understand our own brain by looking at them. So, you know, a lot of Skinner and Watson's work went into psychological um, uh, evaluations, methods used for therapies, you know, your CBT kind of therapies, your ABA kind of therapies and things like that. A lot of these ideas went in and Watson is very famous for his one of those quotes, right? I can't quote it verbatim, but, you know, he says, you know, give me any human being and I can make him into a doctor, engineer, whatever it is. Because at the end of the day, it's, they're not born with anything special. They're all the same. And, you know, you can eventually mold them to be anything. Mm. But that's not the case. We are so diverse. We are so different. We are so interesting. And when you look at, uh, you know, human beings like that or animals like that, you just miss out on what's beautiful. Yeah. I, I think
0: one of the things that really intrigues me is, and maybe it's wrong, you'll have to validate this, a canine behaviorist is like a psychiatrist in the veterinary uh, medicine space. Am I getting that right? Or
1: somewhat. Um, so. Um, uh Yes, because a canine behaviorist, so I should actually correct you a little bit there because I'm not a canine behaviorist. I'm a canine behavior consultant and an educator because a behaviorist needs to have a veterinary degree as well to be able to prescribe medication as well. Mm. And so that medication actually does go into the space of uh, mental health, you know, and mental health issues, which also they do have because they have brains much like ours. Uh, So, in that sense, a psychiatrist also, you know, does prescribe medication. So, there is that parallel and I think that that does make sense. Okay. What I do is more like what a psychologist would do, where, you know, Uh we don't... uh, I'm not a medical doctor and that I'm not going to be prescribing medication. But I do understand uh, what we call biosocial psychology, which is how does the body, the mind and the social uh, uh, milieu of Mm -hmm. the animal come together to create what we see... What we see is the external part, which is behavior. That is just, you know, scratching the surface. Inside is the is the living being. Yeah. And that understanding is something that we do need to have. Got it, got it. And Sindhu,
0: <clears throat> I want to go a little more deeper into this. Because I think I, I always, I think you've heard Vikas's conversation as well, yeah. right? I'm very intrigued by the whole psychology of things. And even there, I asked him, you know, a very naive question of, you know, why haven't animals evolved? And he gave me a brilliant answer around that. And I think you're sort of corroborating that for me more. Um, one of the things I sort of wonder in is do dogs really understand us? Do dogs really... How do they sort of read us? Oh. Um, is it through facial expressions? Because I've seen, like, you know, um, if Shamir and me... Or like, you know, even in a conversation a little louder, my boy Shadow used to come in between and he knew exactly who was sort of at the wrong side and who was yelling at whom. And he would stand straight and like, you know, have a different bark itself. So in some ways, I feel they can read us, they can understand us and they are also thereby trying to communicate with us.
1: Do they really read us? Oh my goodness, like you can't believe. And I've actually come to realize that dogs read us way better than we read ourselves. They, um, so the last study that, you know, we spoke about ethology, right? So ethology is the study of animals in their natural environment, Mm. which means for dogs, Mm. um, the right place to do an ethological study is street dogs. dogs. So the last study that I have been doing, which I struggled to actually publish because it was so complicated, what we were trying to do is to see how well they read us. Mm. And it, my mind just blew. Because uh, remember that dogs are uh, animals that are specifically evolved to fit into this ecological niche which is around human beings. They are not animals that do well in the wild per se. They do well inside cities and villages Around human beings, dogs are animals that evolved to exist in this niche, mm. which means that human beings and exploiting human beings as a resource is a big part of their survival strategy. Oh. They may not have tall necks like a giraffe or a hard shell like a tot- you know, turtle or a tortoise, but what they do have is they can read human beings like you can't believe. Um that's, that's where I the this, dewy eyes come. Oh my goodness! Absolutely, <laughs> and that's what I tell people. right? I tell the story in my classes. I conduct these one-on-one classes, and I tell them. I always tell the story, which is fascinating for me, and for people in India, this is this is going to be so familiar. So, uh, my previous house in HSR, um, there's a there's a bakery right outside, and uh, sure enough, around four o'clock, a bunch of cab drivers turn up there for you know your chai, chai and sutta it. kind of a thing, right? And invariably, a dog turns up there. And now this dog is not just going to go to any person. This dog is going to walk around the group, Mm. sizing up every person. Interesting. To see which person do I approach. Because if I approach the wrong person, he's going to kick me or hit me or worse. God alone knows. So I need to find the right person. Now we do have lab studies that show us that dogs are able to look at human beings and how they treat each other and determine if you're a fair or an unfair person and they prefer fair people. So, basically, they can look into your soul. Wow. wow. Right? So, they, this dog will pick up this person who he knows is going to be kind to the dog and go up to that person and say, buy me a biscuit. And that guy, is uh, the shopkeeper is going to turn around and say, this dog doesn't like this biscuit, <laughs> likes this cake. Hmm. How much communication has happened here? Just think about that, right? Is there any other animal that we can communicate with like this? Who can size us up like this? So, their survival depends on... Being able to do that puppy dog eyes, please give. And we give. We can't help it. That's also something that we have studied. So when we make eye contact with the dogs, uh, we generate oxytocin, which is kind of, you know, the hormone that makes us a little stupid, makes us want to give, makes us maybe baby, baby voice and it's kind of makes us a little uh, drops our guard. Hmm. So they are able to actually now manipulate the chemicals in our brain with their eyes. They have extra muscles in their eyes to give them that big eye look. Which, you know, their closest cousins don't have that. They have that. It's what we call neoteny. They act, they look and act like a juvenile of an animal even when they are fully grown. Very few animals play as much as dogs do. Dogs will play almost right up to their... You know, very, very old age. They continue to engage in these silly, childish kind of behaviors. Why? Because it impresses us. Can you, I mean, just think about this, right? They have evolved to almost manipulate our brains kind of a thing, to to support them, to keep them around. Uh, we tolerate them. This, if a hyena walked around our cities like this, we would not be okay with it, but we tolerate dogs somehow. I know there is cruelty, but at the same time, to a great extent, we do, we're okay. Yeah. Right? So they do read us and when we were doing the study, what we saw is dogs have to now size up who do I approach, who do I not approach because I don't have the option of not approaching human beings. So now I need to know, do I take that chance on you or do I not? And so they were doing this based on tiny, tiny, tiny little, you know, if I would do, if I, if I knitted my eyebrows, they were like, okay, lady, I'm not so much, I'm going to go away. But uh, And the thing is, you know, I like the dogs, right? So I was trying to do this, but I wasn't serious about it. They could tell the difference. They could tell the difference that you're faking it. And that too, we have seen in studies and lab studies. Dogs can read our emotions based on not just looking at our face. You were asking facial expression. Not just looking at our face, but photographs of our faces. Mm. But not just photograph of our faces. Photographs of half the face. Oh. Upper half or lower half. And they're able to tell our emotions. And the article that I read worded it beautifully. It said, if you smile with your mouth and not with your eyes, meaning you're faking it, they can tell the difference. My dogs always have been able to... My Chiru, you know, she... If I... I don't even have to express it. Now, you know, I live alone. Um, and I don't... I'm not really necessarily expressing it to somebody else. But if I am experiencing something that is unpleasant, she knows immediately. Yeah, I've seen that with... Yeah. yeah, Absolutely. They sort of have a very innate ability to actually recognize it. And it's not just facial expressions. Facial expression, body language, patterns, pheromones, our voice, our tone. They're, uh, you know, synthesizing all of that together to uh, see who we are. So, you know, there are people who say dogs are the best anthropologists of the world. Mm. They know us better than we do and I did see that even when you know my husband was alive um, I mean my husband and I absolutely we were absolutely in love with each other but I still think that our dogs read me better than Uttam read me and vice versa too he would also say that saying you know uh, I think uh, they, they recognize it much better because we do tend to try our best to hide our pain and our you know difficult emotions from each other but you can't hide it from a dog yeah. you can't if you try it
0: Taking a quick break from our conversation today, I wanted to quickly talk about our collaboration partner, Hubhopper. This podcast was created on Hubhopper Studio. If you wish to start your own podcast for free, please visit www.hubhopperstudio.com. Hubhopper is India's leading podcast creation platform. Start your podcast with Hubhopper Studio and get your voice heard um, across platforms like Spotify, Ghana, Google Podcasts, Wink Music, and many more. Click on the link in the episode description to or visit hubhopperstudio.com. Thank you, Hubhopper, for the collaboration. And now we go back to our conversation. In some ways, it's like a child, right? And that's why I don't know if it's the right way of putting it. But then often people say, before you bring a child to this world, bring a dog and see if you can take care of a dog. I don't know if that's the right way. But then if I look at how you bring up a pet at home, it's like uh, your kindergarten, uh, you know, box of crayons. Mm -hmm. It's very simple, light set of things. And then it's a canvas that you're Mm -hmm. going to paint. Mm What's the best advice
1: for someone who's bringing a pet home? Um, I think I would say uh, do your homework before you get the dog home. Don't get blindsided entirely. Mm. I think a lot of us make that mistake and quite honestly I'm guilty of it too. I think I did too and um, I think even as parents we do, I mean forget parents, even in marriage we do, right? In Mm. relationships too. we get into these things without really knowing and being prepared for it Um, and I think that's what ends up hurting everybody around. So I think if there was wisdom that I could pass on is any relationship that you're getting into one is to do your homework a little bit to understand and not go in with this rosy idea relationships are messy they are no matter how rosy we think it is no matter what Walt Disney movie or Bollywood movie we watch relationships are messy um, so go in with a little bit of an understanding of what is going to be messy about it uh, spend a little bit of time and energy in understanding their language mm. it's like getting married to somebody who speaks a completely different language it's we know straight away this is not going to go very well right so learn the language a little bit learn dog language a little bit and then also go in with a little bit of understanding that it's okay if this doesn't meet my expected picture you know that I have painted with glitter and stars on it kind of a thing no this is not going to be your lassie from a, a Walt Disney movie kind of a thing this is going to be a living being that in fact is going to have opinions that go against what you like at some points yeah And you have to be okay with it and go in with that humility is really what uh, I would, I think, advice. And would you put rules, like, for a child, we put rules. Would <clears throat> you put rules for a dog as well? Absolutely. And I and I don't think it's about rules. I, I think to me, that's not the way I look at it. I think it's about personal boundaries, right? Mm. So for example, um, and a lot of people when I talk like this, they think that, oh, so the dog, your dog can do anything that she wants to do, is it? No, neither my dog nor I can do whatever we want to do. Now, both of us do respect each other's Wishes and both of us do get our. Uh, I mean, we've reached a point in our relationship where you know both of us are mindful of okay, if you don't like it, I won't do it, which means that she's also in that place. So, if I am able to let her know that I don't like this, um, she does respect that. Yeah, I've seen but, that with Leah. She just, when I say a stern
0: no, she might come with a ball to play, but then she knows it and yeah. she just.
1: You know, it's like a disappointed look, but then she understands and she goes off. Yeah. yeah. So, and and I think, you know, uh, the more you get good at reading body language, the more you get good at um, communicating with body language. So this is something that we don't do anymore. For example, none of my students, none of us say no to the dog. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean we don't draw boundaries. We just don't say no to the dog. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, if Chiru comes and she's begging for food, and I'll give her a little bit of, you know what I have because food is best enjoyed when it's shared uh, Mm -hmm. and they're social eaters so are we Uh, but uh, I don't I don't have a great healthy diet so you know I don't want to give you too much of what I'm eating (laughs) so I will probably share a little bit because it feels good to both of us but then you know I am able to use my body language to say okay I am kind of done this is done there's no more sharing happen I am not saying no you don't do this you don't beg. I'm not saying that your actions are not something I'm trying to control. Mm. What I'm trying to tell you is, I don't want to share with you anymore. Mm. Or let's say when she jumps on me, uh, you know, when I come in through the door and she jumps on me, I don't want her jumping on me. Well, today, because I'm in a sari and I'm not going to want her to jump on me. But most days, you know, this act of jumping up and jumping down is quite bad on your shoulders. So from her perspective also, I don't want her jumping on me. So I'm not going to be telling her, you don't do this. Instead, what I tell her is, I don't like this. Mm. I don't like what you've done. I don't like the way you're treating me. And, and because our relationship is at a place where this matters to her, she does then say, oh, you don't like it? Okay, let me offer you another way, another behavior. What do you think about this? Um, and I think, uh, uh, I think that's, again, a mental shift, right? There's a difference between trying to control you versus communicating with you. And I'm trying to get better at communicating, not control. Uh, And I'm trying our relationship to be in a good enough place where it matters to you. When I say Mm -hmm. I don't like that, I really didn't like what you did, it matters to you. So there are boundaries that I set with my dog. I don't like her bolting out of the door as soon as I open it because who knows what could be outside. So I want to take a few minutes to look outside and say, okay, coast is clear. Come on, let's go. Um, I do want her to, um, you know, give me attention Um, if, you know, things are, in you know, those SOS situations, right? Oh, my God, come on, we got to go. So there are a few things that I want, but I think the more we learn to read them, more we learn to play around with our bodies, to kind of, I, I, Remember I told you, they are experts at reading our body language. So if you're aware a little bit of what they're reading, you can actually do this deliberately. Mm. You can actually say, okay, so that is what you make of it. So then I will use that to communicate with you. So as you can see, the theme keeps coming back to communicate. communicate. I almost feel like I'm a marriage counselor. I
0: was going to leave that to the next question, right? So
1: seriously, it feels, it, in that case...
0: As a psychologist for a canine, um, you know, the dog world, do you really
1: counsel the pet, the dog or the dog owner? Always the human being. The The human, Absolutely. Because what we want to do is affect change in the dog for sure. Yeah. But, you know, when things go wrong, it's not necessarily that the dog is broken. Again, Cartesian idea of machines. It's not a computer that's broken. You can't put this in my house and say, fix this, fix this and give this back. It is a relationship that is struggling. Yeah. It is communication that has broken down. Um, and this individual more likely than not with pet dogs what I see is pet dogs have been put in a situation where they're not able to work cognitively they're not able to think things through they're not able to problem solve um, and that's because they have not had the opportunity to nurture all those things Mm. so when I go in that's what I do I evaluate the household Mm. the environment and I do evaluate the dog as in you know An individual is not just a product of the environment but uh, to a certain extent genetics do play a role, Uh, to a great extent history plays a role. So um, and that is where you know bio-social psychology is the body where they are at, the mind and the social milieu that they are in, all of that plays a role. Mm, So I go in to evaluate all of that and say look. Given the history of this dog and the, and the physical condition that the dog is in and the mental condition that the dog is in, today, this is all they can do. Mm. These are the needs that they have. And these are the challenges and these are the strengths. Now, you're the smart species, right? What can we work with here? Yeah. How do we work with this animal? How do we communicate with this animal? How do we read the animal better? Um, how do we get the animal to pay more attention to us? If you're telling the dog, I don't like this and your dog is going to do it anyways, don't you think that's a broken relationship? Yeah. yeah. I mean, isn't there supposed to be love? Like with my dogs, if I... Uh, you know, I'll never forget this example. When Nishi, my older dog, was alive, one day I was cutting her nails. And uh, I went a little too close to, you know, the nerves in the nail, and she yelped. Mm. As soon as she yelped... Uh, I panicked and I started saying, oh my god, oh my god, I can't believe I did this. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. She didn't uh, realize that I'm saying sorry to her. She only heard the panic in my voice and she came back to look at me to say, are you okay? Mm. And I had to tell her, I'm okay. Look at that, right? I mean, look at the beauty of that thing. She's the one who's hurt and I'm telling her, I am okay. Mm. That's how much she cares about whether I am okay or no. Dogs are capable of care like that. So are human beings. But if, we are, if the other individual is not caring like that, if they're being passive-aggressive with us, if they're um, trying to push our buttons, the relationship is a problem. Yeah? There's an analogy I'm
0: actually seeing between this conversation to the actual human world as well, right? And it's about the linkage between who cognition part of it as well as uh, ethics. Yeah. And we were talking about it offline as well. Can you draw a parallel to this?
1: Um, actually, you know, um, I think there are parallels all over the place. Quite honestly, this idea of trying to control another individual is not something we do just to animals. Yeah. So, you know, I'm currently now doing my master's in anthrozoology. What, and ant- what is that? <laughs> uh, it's uh, another <laughs> <laughs> terminology now. Yes. Uh, so, it's actually an offshoot of anthropology. Okay. Uh, and uh, uh, and what's interesting um, is a lot of the early anthropological studies that were started were done back in the days of um, colonization, mm. where uh, the colonists brought in anthropologists or scientists or researchers to study particularly difficult local local tribes, see how to break those societies and a lot of those studies went back and you know for a long time they were actually stuck in the annals of uh, you know academia which uh, looked at um, so-called indigenous people as less evolved Hmm. Uh, and so you know their um, you know their uh, lived realities what we call the way they gather knowledge what we call their epistemology the way they actually gather knowledge about the world around them was considered Um, primitive Mm. they don't understand Mm. Um, and so because they don't understand we step in we control we tell them we better their world we give them our way of learning we give them our way of education we give them our lifestyle because ours is better and we teach them because they are not good enough to know this Uh, thankfully the academic world and anthropology is no more there Uh, that world has actually taken a turn and they're now beginning to understand the different people across the world. The way they view the world is totally valid. The way the uh, sort of Euro-American way of viewing the world is not necessarily the best in the world. I mean, the climate disaster today that we're looking at is a product of that way of looking at the world. Uh, so it's not necessarily the best. So understanding that, you know, for example, a lot of indigenous cultures seem to have a way of understanding the world where they can live sustainably. Yeah. So is their knowledge then... Uh, you know, uh, maybe even more critical in today's day and age. It is not less than, it is just another way. And so what has happened is, I mean, anthropology has taken this, what we call the reflexive turn and um, moved. And anthrozoology is an offshoot of that, which is to say, well, now that we're looking at, you know, different ways of looking at the world and understanding the world and living the world and gathering knowledge, animals do have another reality, which... It's not necessarily less than. Hmm. They too have a reality, a way of understanding the world and dealing with the world which is not necessarily less than. They don't seem to end up causing something of this nature. Right? So they have a way of living and existing in the world which we can learn from as well. They have knowledge as well. How do we understand that? And that's what anthrozoology is. And I think that's really the parallel. So it's really interesting for me to read that a lot of the papers that we read on anthrozoology, there is a lot of, um, you know, they touch upon ideas of feminism, of, uh, um, you know, colonialism, you know, a lot of these things that people have had to fight to say we are not less than, it's just a different and worthy of respect, worthy of understanding uh, and similarly beginning to extend that to animals as well and I think that's um, an understanding that uh, you know the cognitive abilities of these different individuals, no matter what the species is, is not something that we dismiss <laughs> off. You know, there's value in it and if you have the humanity to see it, we got richer for that. Yeah, yeah. I also see this uh, between the feminine and the masculine absolutely well, right? absolutely it's 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 interesting that you bring this up because just last sunday i you know I, I had a discussion with my professor and you know the the paper that i submitted was exactly on this so i also see that a lot of understanding in at least in animal behavior is the papers that i read um, but i'm pretty sure this is kind of pervasive across all parts of science and all parts of um, scientific study and academia um the concepts the words that are used to explain concepts, what we choose to observe, what we choose to study, is driven by um, um, sort of uh, it, there is a uh, anthrop. I mean, there is an anthropocentrism to it. There is a ethnocentrism to it. There's uh, sorry, there's an ethnocentrism to it. Um, there is an andro uh, you know an androgenic bias as well there. So there is this whole um, what do you say Euro American male perspective mm. that is kind of brought in so uh, an example that I kind of um, give is uh, uh, typically when we study animal worlds there's a lot of focus on what are called dominance hierarchies Yeah, right because we love that it's it's all about the power so how is you know how is power established how is power maintained and this idea of power being the kind of the bedrock of human uh, you know human animal all of life form all social forms right Um, so I was reading up about this dog study that was done for about it was like I think a 13 year old project that was done in Bar Harbor University where they were looking at um, dogs and they said you know yes dogs dominate uh, you know male uh, dogs dominate female dogs in most uh, breeds except for one breed I can't remember the one breed Um, it's irrelevant but In this one breed that they saw that the so-called females were dominating the males and this is an idea that just didn't sit right with the scientists. So how do they choose to describe this now? They choose to describe it as um, maybe what we're seeing in this case is something similar to male chivalry. (laughs) Chivalry. So either which way, you know, the argument is... And I'm like, how do you know that what you're seeing with the rest of the dogs is not a female chivalry? Yeah. Uh, similarly for example with the, there is a study that uh, Dr. Sapolsky has done on bonobos where they, they, I mean yes there are, when we look at bonobos and this was kind of in my paper, if you go look at Wikipedia uh, on bonobo and bonobo behavior you will see I think there are some 5 or 7 mentions of the word dominance there Right. Mm-hmm. so we are very fascinated with the dominance structures that they have set up do the bulk of the population engage in dominance behaviors? No actually it is uh, this uh, group that was studied, I think, had a 50-50 male and female split. And even amongst the males, it was only some of them. You know, the obnoxious ones. The way I, That's the way I look at it. So those were the ones who were actually dominating, uh, trying to play these dominance games, but the rest weren't. Uh, and uh, interestingly, what happened is this lot that were dominating happened to, uh, they all died out. Okay, and because they were, uh, they bullied the other animals. They found a human dustbin to you know scavenging. so they bullied all the other guys and they you know took over this thing and that came with diseases with it so the whole lot uh, died so this group that was left behind were the individuals who are not dominating so when they're not dominating what do they do instead very few people even know the words for this because it doesn't make it into the wikipedia article or anywhere they engage in affiliative behaviors They engage in caregiving and caretaking and behaviors. And even the males that were left behind, you know, all of them actually were engaging in affiliative behaviors. When new individuals were added, they didn't go back to the dominant structure. They stuck with the affiliative behaviors. Now, here's the clincher. These animals had a lot lower levels of cortisol in their body. So, a society that was made of more affiliative behaviors actually was a society that um was overall healthier mm. <clears throat> but the thing is we haven't studied this enough yeah. nobody seems to be interested in affiliative behaviors everybody so far seems to have been fascinated with dominance behaviors that is changing for sure because we do have much more diverse views coming in but you're right you can see that kind of male dominance there uh, in the way in in not just how we describe it but what we even choose to study and give importance to right mm. And that kind of mutes out, you know, female voices in how we understand human beings, uh, how n- understand lives. That's what I put in my paper saying, where are the voices of, uh, for example, not just women, but women who come from matrilinear cultures. Yeah, uh, You know, show them this and ask them how they describe it. They might have a very interesting and different way of describing this. Yeah, yeah. I come from one of those languages, right? And
0: it's very different. It is very different to... The the fundamentals are so different.
1: Yeah. The
0: expectations, like the box that you paint itself is so different. Yes,
1: yes. Just the way you look at the world is different, right? And that voice needs to be heard. And I think this then comes into the corporate world. Yeah. We then take this and, you know, then this is is kind of the bedrock of capitalism, isn't it? It's a very unpopular view, but... (laughs) It is, right? <laughs> which is and I've heard these terms, right? Dog eat, dog world, survival of the fittest. When I look at the dogs outside, the fittest is not the one who gets into the most number of fights and wins. Because if you get into an actual fight and whether you win or no, one you're one you're, one. you're you're injured, yeah. which means that you're likely to die. Yeah. The fittest is the one who knows how to avoid the most number of fights. The fittest is the one who knows how to have the most affiliative behaviors, the one who knows how to make the most number of friends and say, so share a little bit of that with me, right? and to convince them but that is not what we actually see and I feel really sad because I mean quite honestly when I was in the corporate world I totally believed in you know all of this I was kind of got carried away with it but now that I've taken a step back from it I see it as being so unhealthy it isn't bringing the best out in all of us not all of us are wired to be that way this isn't human nature and we shouldn't be made to our voices shouldn't count only if it's the loudest voice yeah Baby that cries the loudest exactly. gets to feed, sort of thing. Yeah. Exactly, right? That should not be it. That's not what we should be. Uh, you know, our fundamental idea of this is the way nature works. No. This is the way we have documented it so far that nature works this way because that's what we've chosen to see. Yeah. But that's not necessarily the way nature works. There's a bigger picture there that we don't seem to uh, still get yet.
0: Sindhu, so, I want to sort of go to the last leg of the conversation, which is. One of the things about attitude makeover is really following the creator, the passion, and the gig economy. And what does career journey look like? And you're a classic case of the passion economy here, uh, but it's not easy with Barks um, as well as the book and these, um, you know, the behaviorist um, you know, counseling sessions you have. The three different avenues, but How is making a living out of passion economy possible for someone who's really venturing into it and really not knowing the nuances of it? Or there might be quite a few out there because there's a whole resignation wave that's happening. How does
1: one go through it? so I think there are multiple things to keep in mind of course the first thing that you know we did talk about this earlier too is um it does kind of uh, it does come from a place of privilege to even have this conversation so I think that's something that we need to recognize and if it is something that we do have then um be appreciative be appreciative of that um, um and make the most of it, mm. uh, you know, recognize that you've been, you're lucky. Uh, so, uh, so it's worth taking, you know, figuring this out. The next thing that I see a lot of people come and tell me, oh, you figured out your passion, I'm still looking. Mm. So I think that's where a lot of people make a mistake. I think they think that this is just going to come to them. It's somehow, you know, this inspiration is going to come on You know, a little stock is going to come and land it on their feet kind of a thing. Um, I think if you are really looking for, um, looking at what you call passion economy, um, you really need to find that passion. And you, you uh, it's an active work of searching, hunting, right? And there's a lot of trial and error. Like I mentioned, I tried dance. I tried going into the NGO sector. I tried technology. I tried uh, product Um there are a lot of different things I did try uh, so I think there's a lot of trial and error involved which also means that you get kicked on the floor many times get comfortable with eating dust right like just be vulnerable, just, be, yeah. open vulnerable. be open to being open to being vulnerable be, and be open to being vulnerable despite getting hurt many 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 times uh, you have to learn to pick yourself up and say okay I'll keep going I'll keep looking because this is worth it mm. I'm able to do it I'm in a place where I can do it so this is worth it um, and then I think there's also uh, even when you find it there are going to be moments of great doubt they're going to be moments of great difficulty it's going to take a long time to figure out the the finance of it whether it works or no and there's also a recognition that uh, it's highly unlikely that you're going to be you know uh, having the same kind of luxury and comfort either in terms of money or security or whatever that you had working in a corporate or whatever it is. So to me, it has required that I've had to look uh, relook at my lifestyle and be okay with kind of scaling down, prioritizing, uh, asking myself, do am I okay with doing a job that I don't like mm-hmm. in order to have all this wonderful material stuff or is the journey of my life itself? Um, something that I want to fall in love with. And so these things don't matter. This journey is so beautiful that the rest doesn't matter. Mm. Um, I think if you can get to a place where you feel that way, then you are on, you know, you you kind of are a good candidate to actually follow your passion. If you're not, then maybe, you know, (laughs) I do see a lot of uh, particularly, you know, uh, young people who leave corporates seem to think that, you know, oh, I'm going to find my passion. I'm going to be that, you know, that that next big CEO of this big fortune 500 company or whatever it is that I'm going to be minting money. So I'm going to do this because I'm going to find my passion and money will come Mm. and great money will come. Mm. Money will come, but a lot of times it's this much money that comes. Um, Your true economy, your true payback is enjoying that journey. Mm. So I think that is the question to ask is, can I enjoy that journey? And then, and then I think it can sustain your life. And sustain a somewhat humble life. And that should be okay. To mm. say, okay, I, That's okay. I don't need a 10 crore house. It's okay. True. I can let that go. I don't need a new car every five years. I don't need a new phone every year. It's okay. I can let those things go. Um, I think these are important to remember. Um, and then if you're okay and you made all the compromises and you're it's not really compromise, it's prioritization. So really reprioritize I think once you've done all that, then you need a spine you need to be saying oh, it's okay you can kick me down uh, you can kick me down however many times the world can you know throw whatever it is at me this thing gives me so much joy that I just I will do it I just heads down and I just will do this so there is a north star though you sort of set yourself on or you figure out the not star. I think you figured it out I think that's the other thing that I think is important is that having that flexibility because when I started I started out as a consultant mm. today where I'm at is I'm an educator and I'm a researcher and mm. I find that that's kind of what makes more sense to me uh, that does mean that I don't get as much hands-on work with customers dogs or clients dogs but I get to in- engage with street dogs so there is that kind of You need to be okay with being flexible and kind of going a different path Uh, don't get too hung up on things letting go of um, certain kind of dreams or goals letting go of ego Uh, oh boy (laughs) those are the times when you know I I, Uh, recently one of my students got to witness this uh, when I had to let go of my ego and I threw a tantrum for a day. But I think what it boils down to is the tantrum ends at the end of the day and I say, okay, let go now, bigger picture. um, uh, And yeah, and being, uh, enjoy the journey enough to go where the path takes you. It's okay if it doesn't go where it, don't get hung up on that, right? Go where it takes you and uh, thoroughly enjoy it. Otherwise, you'll regret it. You miss mm. the journey, you'll regret it. Mm.
0: Sindhu, thank you so much. This has <laughs> been a wonderful and a very insightful conversation. I think as a dog owner especially, you know, it's a very mysterious world. It's a beautiful world. I've I've had, like I said, from my childhood, um, I grew up in a house which is three women and one dog and he happened to be a male. That's the only male I <laughs> yeah. had in the house, right? From there to now at some point two dogs and I also have a pet, another pet which is a turtle called Purshotam and oh. again he communicates so beautifully and I've realised the art of communication is just us figuring it out and yeah. putting some effort and yeah. you sort of solidified that thought for yeah. me I hope the audience also sort of you know take away some of these things both at work as well as at their personal space because there's quite a lot of learnings yeah. Thank you so much
1: my pleasure you know you said the art of coming and the art of communication is in listening yes and so. i think that's where we, a lot of us make a mistake when we say oh, i'm good at communication i can yeah. speak
0: yeah i can yeah Ego. no that's oration yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah yeah art of communication is in uh, being able to like to read says shut up and listen yeah and i think if if there's anything that i'd like to uh, yeah like for people to take away from this is um, just that observe observe listen understand um, and have humility to say it's okay what I know probably is not the best thing empathy empathy yes
0: thank you so much thank
1: you so much it was such a lovely conversation I loved it (laughs) me too thank you (laughs) this is our uh...
0: check knock on wood yeah (laughs) it went well yeah those words think? of describing different professional journeys you have, sorry I goofed <laughs> so badly. I had it in my mind, Sindur. I
1: had it all. No, I didn't I, that I, I, No <laughs> way, no way, please, please, please. So, <laughs> you're like... You're a canine behaviorist, and I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> then She couldn't say myotherapist, she said something else, and I'm like, what is she trying to say? Myotherapist. I was, and then I was ethologist, really... where it tripped entirely. <laughs> ethologist, <laughs> say it again, say it again. Entomologist? <laughs> yeah,
0: I know. Entomologist?
1: <laughs> <laughs> <Anthemologists. laughs> Entomologist is bugs. <laughs> <laughs> and then I saw your face when I said anthrozoology. I'm like, what is that? <laughs> 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 it's still going, so it's
0: perfect. Oh, shit! she all of this.
1: Yes. And then, you know, uh, and then I had to get to the point where I was like, okay, I'm gonna say this. I'm gonna say this word out loud, and I don't know if the colour will drain from her face. the social psychology, and I'm like, <laughs> you look at me so much. It's like, alright, then do I ask her? What the hell is that? No. <laughs>